In college, I had a, a close friend named Paul. I, I mentioned him a few weeks ago, I think it was two weeks ago. Uh, he was the chronically late friend, if you remember me talking about him. And one of the aspects of our relationship was that we wanted to care for one another. We wanted to spur one another along to follow Jesus more closely. Now, in the circles that he and I hung out with, hung out around in college, right, this relationship was called an accountability partner. And the friendship provided a safety where we could be vulnerable with one another, so that we could share areas of our lives that we might have been struggling to live out the gospel. Now, when you you know that you have this sin that you're dealing with, uh, most of us don't want to, like, put ourselves on blast to the whole community. And so that, the, the closeness of that relationship provided, uh, you know, having a safe friend was comforting to share these struggles without judgment. I mean, just as an aside, I, I do think that these types of relationships are important for us, that we can be transparent with one another. Because when, when we don't have these relationships, I would argue that the tendency that we have is to hide our sin, right? We might feel embarrassed. We might uh, be ashamed of something that we've said or done. And without a safe space to share it, we turn inward. We, the sin, when, if it's left unchecked, can continue to be buried below the surface. But anyway, in this relationship with, with Paul, um, th- there was an area of, of, of uh, I hope I'm not too provocative this morning, but there was an area of struggle that I had that was very common and is very common uh, across the, uh, amongst young people, but even uh, it's not confined to young people. I had a compulsion towards internet pornography. It was something that I knew was wrong. It was something that was not glorifying to God, and I knew ultimately was unhealthy for me. And so Paul was this friend that I could go to to confess my shortcomings. But like many addictions, like many compulsions that we face, the stranglehold that it had on my life wasn't just going to go quietly into the night. And so in an effort to see victory in this area of sin in our lives, one night, Paul and I uh, met up on campus. So I was at Penn State University at the time. So we met up on campus at 2 a.m., and we, we started on the east side of campus, and we each selected a rock that was about 25 pounds. And, and each of us proceeded to carry that rock across the campus of Penn State. Now, mind you, it's a pretty large rural campus. It was like a mile wide. So, um, you know, an hour or so later, Paul and I were exhausted, and we were sore, and we had used this time as a way to showcase our devotion to God. Use it as a way to acknowledge His standards, and to try to use it as a way to serve as a deterrent to keep this area of sin at bay in our lives, Because it's like, I I don't want to do that again. Now, in many ways, the story is a tragedy because the experience, as I just said, coalesced in our minds that we never wanted to do that again. It was miserable. And it did provide a disincentive to stay away from areas of struggle. But as many of you who deal with addiction know, the shackles of compulsion are hard to break. I don't know if it was weeks later. I don't remember if it was months later. But I found myself in that place again. But this time, in an effort to avoid a late-night, back-breaking walk across campus, 
I kept it inside. I didn't share it with Paul. I didn't want to admit it because I don't want to have to go through that again. Now, I wish I had known then what I know now. I wish I had known that I could not get over this hurdle on my own strength. I was trying to fix myself. I was trying to do the right things to control my life, to, to move it in a way that I, in line with what I knew God wanted for me. But what I desperately needed was the power of God to transform me. And the place that I have seen victory of sin of all kinds in my life, I'm far from perfect, I still have a long way to go. But where I have seen those, those victory in battles of sin is actually in the path of repentance. Now, my hope this morning is to give us a, a paradigm for understanding the proper place of repentance in our spiritual lives and try to display how it can be a catalyst for that transformation in us. But I think in order to get there, we need to untether our cultural understanding of repentance with penance. I I think we have a tendency to get those two ideas confused. At its base, repentance is a term that's used in Scripture a number of times. It it originates in the Hebrew, and it it literally means to turn around. The illustration would be you're walking in a direction, you stop walking, you do an about face, and you start walking in the opposite direction. And if you like Bible nerds out there, the word is shuv, is, is the Hebrew word for repentance. But penance takes that action one step further. Penance tries to assuage our guilt. It's kind of our way of groveling, like showing God just how sorry we were. Right? That late night boulder carrying event with Paul was an example of penance. It was a man-made avenue to show God how sorry we were and to provide this deterrent from any repeat infractions. I don't know if any of you, I remember, gosh, 15 years ago, probably longer now. No, it was when we were first married. I think it was on our honeymoon. I read uh, Dan Brown's uh, Da Vinci Code, right? Because that was like all the rage back then. And there's a character in there that is all about penance, right? He does something wrong and he starts kind of whipping himself, right? It's meant to, to try to deal with the grief and and to deter future behavior. Now, when we conflate this penance and repentance, we think that it then is therefore something reserved uh, in times of of really bad sin. If it's an extreme case of sin, maybe we need to venture there. But Martin Luther, when he kicked off that Reformation and he nailed those 95 theses to the door of the cathedral, the very first one said, when our master and Lord, I got those confused, when our Lord and master, Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of the believers to be one of repentance. Repentance is not just something for extreme cases. It's not just for extreme cases of sin, but should be a part of our daily lives. I have two primary passages I want us to look at this morning to focus on. And the first comes from Psalm 51. If you have Bibles and you want to turn there, I'd encourage you to do so. Now, some context for this psalm. All right, King David, he is described in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. David had some really high highs. He brought military peace. He brought economic prosperity. 
spiritual awakening to the nation of Israel. He authored the majority of the Old Testament, you know, Hebrew worship book, which is the Psalms. But David also had some really low lows. He fumbled as an apparent on many occasions, one of which basically sparked a civil war in the nation. But probably David's most infamous offense involved his adultery with Bathsheba. Now, many of you know this story, right? The, the men were at war. For whatever reason, David wasn't at war with the men like he should have been. He's hanging out in his palace. He sees a beautiful woman who's bathing on the roof, and he, in essence, sexually assaults her. Now, there's been a history. I want to make a note that there's been a history in the church of trying to place some type of blame on Bathsheba. You know, why didn't she turn David down or whatever it might be? Uh, but I want to acknowledge, and I, I hope we can acknowledge too, that she was innocent in this process because there was a completely different, unequal power distribution in the nature of their relationship. And so when we recount this story, the guilt should, should stay with David and David alone. He finds out afterwards that Bathsheba is, is pregnant. He has her husband killed, uh, eventually marries her. I mean, I guess, you know, God brings goodness out of that. Um, their, their second child was Solomon, who continued, built the temple, continued the Davidic line. Um, but nonetheless, it was a, a gross misuse of his power. So this comes, he, he is made aware of this because a prophet named Nathan challenges him on this. Nathan weaves a story about a, a wealthy man that stole a poor man's sheep, and David's like, that guy's got to pay the price. Nathan says, you're the, you're the guy. I'm talking about you, David. And so David comes to terms with his guilt. David had sinned greatly, but he also knew at this time the great grace of God. And Psalm 51 is basically his confessional lament. So let's follow along with it together. So for the sake of time, I'm just going to do the first portion, verses 1 through 12. This is what David says when he's come face to face with this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. We're going to circle back on that verse in particular. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let these bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out, eradicate all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. It's quite a psalm to talk through repentance, and I think really honors the spirit of what repentance can be. But this morning, I have four characteristics of, a couple of them come out of this passage, but four characteristics of repentance that I want to share with us this morning. The first is this. 
Repentance is oriented towards God. Verse 4 of that psalm says something provocative. David says to God, against you and you only have I sinned. Now, at first glance, I know there have been times I've read through this, and I've tried to justify this uh, in the superficial reading of the text. But at first glance, it may sound like David is dismissive of any pain or suffering that he's causing Bathsheba. Right? Didn't David sin against Bathsheba as well? I think is a fair question. If God alone is the one that he offended in this, this scenario, I think the logical conclusion of that way of thinking might lead us to be cold and emotionally distant from how our actions hurt others. But as we look at the scope of redemptive histories, we look at the teachings of Jesus, I don't think that's how this is supposed to be understood. As if it's like God is the only one offended in, this, in, in the midst of this sin. When we hurt others, when we sin, we acknowledge, or if we confess at least, we acknowledge that we have violated the commands of our Creator. I'm going to pick on my kids a little bit, only one's here this morning. Let's say two of my kids are fighting, something that is relatively common in my household, probably common in yours too if you have kids. Uh, let's just say Austin gets mad and ex- accidentally or intentionally, I don't think it matters in this case, right? He, he takes a, a piece of pottery that Elizabeth has, has created and he breaks it. Now, Elizabeth, as the owner of that item, put owner in quotes, as the creator of that item, Elizabeth is the one whom Austin has lashed out against. Right? His sin is against her. But even if that was true, the piece of pottery has still been affected. It's been smashed. Restoration needs to happen in order to bring it back to, um, to wholeness. So if instead of a piece of pottery we're talking about a person, there would need to be emotional healing that would have to occur for that person as well. Because right? again, I think that's what, what God teaches in terms of restoration and reconciliation. I think what David is acknowledging here is that his sin has been first and foremost a violation to the standards that God has set forth. That is the primary, um, his primary culpability is that he has violated the infinite God's standards of how he ought to live. But that does not free him from culpability of his sin against Bathsheba as well. When we sin, our repentance needs to include a focus on God. I think oftentimes we actually get this back backwards. When we realize that we've hurt someone, we might jump right to trying to restore that horizontal relationship with them, which is important. But at times we often forget to take into account how whatever we have done has affected our vertical relationship with God. We don't neglect our horizontal reconciliation necessary for our human beings that we interact with. But repentance must, be, must begin with reorienting our focus on God, acknowledging our guilt before Him. Right? So repentance starts with God. Second, repentance, this is a big one for me, repentance is motivated by godly sorrow and not selfish regret. You don't have to turn there, but the, the, I'm just going to pull one verse out, a little bit out, uh, I guess it's three verses, a little out of context, but I'm going to try to give you the context. It comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, um, and I think this really aptly summarizes this point. So to give you some background, 
we have, in our Bibles, we have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. But in between that time that Paul wrote those two letters, there is another letter that he wrote, but it's been lost to history. We don't have it anymore. Now, while we don't know its content, you know, what I'm going to call 1.5 Corinthians, right, because it fits in between those two, it was clearly a strongly worded, severe letter that Paul wrote against the Corinthians. There's many instances in 2 Corinthians that Paul reflects, he talks about the strength of language, the exhortation that he provided. Paul wasn't, we don't know what the issue was about, but he wasn't pulling any punches in calling them out. Now, listen as I read the ramifications of this prior letter. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 to 10, Paul is describing their response to it. Paul says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you. Paul's saying like, sorry, but not sorry. Like, I'm sorry that it caused you hurt, that it caused you pain, but this is really important that you kind of move to this, this place. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. And verse 10, I think, is key. For godly grief brings a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Paul is drawing the line between the way they grieved, right, this godly sorrow they felt, and that, that godly grief put them on a trajectory towards transformation without regret. However, Paul says, on the other hand, this, this worldly grief produces death. Or I think another way that you could think about it is it stifles the transformation that repentance can work in us. See, many of us, myself included, are very quick to use worldly grief. We're driven by worldly grief to repentance, to penance, to confession, whatever you want to call it. And it's in, we use it as an attempt to make ourselves feel better. We, we often use these tools, what I'm going to call false res- repentance, not to acknowledge the hurt that we have caused others, but primarily to alleviate the discomfort that we're feeling in ourselves. When we hurt someone, we often apologize to mitigate the guilt that we're currently experiencing. Let's just take an, let's just, let me try to take the abstract and make it concrete for you. Let's say, purely hypothetical, not like this has ever happened before. Catherine, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring all my kids into this. Catherine wants a snack, right? I've said no at least a dozen times to her. At home, Catherine's nickname is the honey badger. She, just, she gets what she just takes what she wants, right? So she opens the pantry, she moves the step stool over, and she starts reaching for a snack. Now here I am, I've said no oh, at least a dozen times, I'm in the middle of prepping dinner, right? And I just cannot handle her stubbornness right now. And so I say no quite uh, once again, and pull her off the step stool, unfortunately probably a little rougher than I ought to because of, of I haven't like hurt her, but, you know, in pulling her and a little bit jarring, it scares her. She kind of is all of a sudden like, what's going on with dad? And she begins to cry. And I immediately recognize that my response was disproportional to what was actually going on. And so how do I feel? I'm guilty now. I have this unease that's like, oh, I screwed up with my daughter again. And so what do I do? I start to apologize. I placate, right? I find things. She probably ends up getting that snack in the end because I'm feeling guilty about it. 
Ultimately, it's not because she needed any of those things, but because I want her to settle down so I can stop feeling this discomfort in myself, right? That I can stop feeling guilty for my overreaction. I don't know if any of you can relate. You don't have to raise your hands, but I don't know if you can relate with this situation. I'm putting myself on blast, but I'm hopefully it's connecting with you all. Repentance should not be marked by selfish regret. Repentance shouldn't be marked by selfish regret. Often that is what we are responding out of because we have this, these feelings inside, that anxiety that makes us uncomfortable. I, when I'm uncomfortable, I immediately do what I feel I need to do in order to return to normalcy and make that discomfort go away. Instead, instead, repentance should flow out of godly grief. A clear recognition of our error and a desire to humble ourselves, not to benefit us, but to benefit the one that we have afflicted. And in other words, what feelings or attitudes or behaviors have been affected in others because of my sin? What do I need to do in order to turn away from my sin and begin the process of healing those hurts? Right, that's godly grief. Worldly grief is, right, did you ever have this instance where you hurt someone? And you apologized, and maybe it was a very genuine apology, and they're like kind of not having it. They're still hurting. And, and it's like, what? I apologize. Like, what more can I do? Right? Because it, we're, we're often operating out of the insecurity of wanting to, to appease ourselves. And we don't always take into consideration the, the hurt or the pain that might be lingering in the midst of that. Right? That, that's why, you know, when it, we're going to talk about forgiveness later, but, I'll, you know, maybe in a month from now, but I'm going to give you a little preview for that, right? Too often in churches, they say, have you ever heard forgive and forget? That is, I don't know if you've heard that. It's baloney, right? I don't think the Bible calls us to forgive and forget because forgiveness, right, even, even if we grant forgiveness, sometimes there are things that have hurt us in life, right, that, that, have, that, that have wounded us and that we carry with us for some time. Anyway, sorry, I'm way off the point. You get what I'm trying to say, right? This godly grief that Paul's talking about is the pathway to our transformation. Let's get to number three. Repentance is concerned with the heart and not just external actions. It's hard to measure transformation in your life, right? How do you tell, how do you determine that you're growing in the Lord? And one metric that we often use is external data, right? Do my behaviors, is the way that I'm living my life reflecting the standards that God has set forth? As we're growing in faith, the hope is that we see a transformation. We see growth in those behaviors. But if that's what we focus on, I think we lose the spirit of repentance in an attempt to just engage in what I call behavioral modification. If a transformed heart means that we will see more virtuous behaviors, the false equivalency that I think is often made is if we see more virtuous behavior, therefore I must have a transformed heart. It doesn't quite work that way. When we focus on these external actions, we have a tendency to engage in false repentance when we're confronted with our sin, right? And there's two main pathways that we see this. First, we engage in remorse. We see what we've done and we think like, I can't believe I did that. Or in other words, that, like, that's not the real me. Right? It was just like a lapse in judgment. I've counseled many folks over the years who, you know, they, 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 sure, they've experienced a lapse in judgment. They think it's just a one-time thing. Surely, it's not a reflection of how they carry themselves out normally day to day. 
And this gets back to that cross chart, right? Understanding that bottom line, how deep the rabbit hole might go of our sin. Because when we don't take responsibility and acknowledge, like, no, that was me that did that, I think it opens up the possibility of, a, of it happening again. I remember this is, hopefully it connects for you. I, I don't know if you guys remember a number of years ago when kind of Tiger Woods' life somewhat fell apart, right? He, like, was hopped up on some substance. He crashed his SUV. It came out that he was, you know, going to Las Vegas, cheating on his wife. And, you know, what, what I saw when that happened was countless individuals, plenty of media, sports pundits, talking, basically just being dis- completely dismissive of Tiger. Now, what Tiger did was terrible, but the cry that I heard from the audience was, like, he's a horrible person. No normal person would do that. When it all went down, the voice that I kept hearing in my head was from, uh, the, echoed the words of my campus minister when I was in college. And he used to say to me, he said, Chris, you need to have a healthy fear of your own depravity. I have to see the possibility in myself that I am capable of great evil just like Tiger. Now, that may, may not be my MO. It's not that I'm just like drawn to that and want to do that all the time, but it is naive to think that I'm somehow above any of those things ever happening, especially where it not be for the grace of God in my life. If the situation goes sideways, we might have remorse, like, that's not the real me. But false repentance can also look like resolution. I promise to do better next time, right? Resolution is willing yourself to be better, to change your life. This is what my friend Paul and I were doing, you know, carrying those stones across campus. We were seeking to change our behavior through sheer force of the will. But change doesn't, doesn't come by just dressing up our actions nicely. I'm, I'm being all sorts of crass today. Now, have you heard that expression, right? It's like polishing a turd. It's like such a silly example. But I feel like it's a graphic way, but I think it rightly highlights that change in the externals matters very little if the inside's not being renewed. And, and this is exactly, I mean, Jesus didn't say that. But he said something similar, right? In John, or not John, excuse me, Luke chapter 6, 43, he says, he, he puts it in agricultural terms. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its fruit. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If we just focus on what we say, we might be able to control our tongue for a little while, James says otherwise, but you get the point. We might be able to force ourselves to do it, but until that heart is transformed... There's gonna, maybe we stop swearing, but we might still be gossiping, right? There's plenty of places. We might still be a real critical parent to our kids or critical friend, right? When we repent, right? Because that pathway between virtuous behavior and the heart is not bidirectional. It begins with the heart, right? When we repent, we must be concerned about the heart, what's going on inside, not just trying to change my behaviors, but where does that heart change come from? And here's the last one, last point. Repentance looks, for Jesus, looks to Jesus for our deliverance and transformation. And here's where the rubber meets the road for me. Right? When I see that there is something that I don't like in my life, how do I go about changing it? The story of the gospel is that we don't ultimately have the power to make those changes in our lives. We can't just pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We can't just force ourselves to be good. Behavioral modification does work. We can work really hard to change our behaviors. But I'm convinced that unless there is inner transformation, of which we have very little power, as I've said multiple times, that change is going to be temporary. 
when things get difficult or something triggers us, we have a habit of returning to that which is familiar and comforting even if it's detrimental to us. The image that comes to mind is lightning. You think about lightning, that jagged bolt lighting up the night sky. Right? That burst of light, the pathway is, I wouldn't say it's predetermined, but it's determined by, determined by finding the path of least resistance. That's why it's bad to stand under a tree in the middle of a lightning storm, because, or something that is tall, or something that is metal especially, because it's going to find that metal, because it's the easiest, the quickest way down. And I think ultimately our hearts like to go back to that which is comforting to us, even if it's detrimental. Instead of repentance, repenting, instead of responding, excuse me, in false repentance with remorse and resolution, I think the gospel invites us to respond with realization and repentance. Realize, own it, yes, that is me. Don't sugarcoat it, don't explain or justify it away. I did that, own it. And then repentance, Jesus, I need you to do something about this mess that is me. Forgive me, cleanse me, change me. That's what we saw in David's Psalm 51. It's not a formula. This isn't just an equation that you can solve for, right? Just go through the right motions, say the right things, and then this all disappears. Again, let me give you just, let me try to give you an example of what this might look like. You know, I've shared multiple times. I, I deal with anger. I deal with frustration with my kids. My patience level is lower than I, where, I, where I would like it to be, where it should be. And you know, the, again, purely hypothetical, like this has never happened before, you know, one of my kids spills a glass of lemonade something that's surely an inconvenience, but my response is to, like, freak out of them. Sticky things make me anxious, uh, so we'll just blame it on that, right? I cringe as I see this, like, sugary drink spilling over the floor, and I, you know, anyway, it's, it's gross. I wish my first response was grace. Man, I know that was an accident. Let's get some paper towels. We can clean it up together. In hindsight, that's how I wish I would respond, but more often, there's very little tolerance for mistakes, quick, grab the paper towels and clean that up. Not a lot of grace in that. Now, there are a few things that are true in a scenario like this. One, I'm tightly wound. Anyone who knows me knows that I'm somewhat of a control freak. Two, my schedule is packed. I am busy. I carefully manicure my schedule to try to keep it. Uh, I try to work with efficiency, and when something like spilled lemonade sidelines my efficiency, I respond poorly. I know that I'm going to have to add another thing to my already full list and clean this up. Three, I know I don't get enough sleep at night, and that leaves me more emotionally fragile and less tolerant of change. Now, I could work really hard to change any number of those three contributions to the way that I respond. I could add margin to my life. I might see an increase in my flexibility when mistakes happen. But even with a perfectly aligned solution, the problem here is ultimately that I'm responding out of spirit of anger inside. I'm not responding in love or peace or patience or gentleness or self-control or any of, you know, name whatever fruit of the spirit you want to, to use. Remember, they're called the fruit of the spirit for a reason. They're not rewards of the Spirit. They're not entitlements of the Spirit. They aren't things that I can manufacture in myself, but I need to see that Holy Spirit cultivate that growth and development in me. When I ultimately find myself unduly snapping at my children for making a mistake, instead of responding, responding with false repentance, right? I explained how I did that with Catherine, or ignoring my hurtful comments, making a half-hearted apology like, can't we just move on with life now? 
this provides an opportunity for me to go to the Lord. God, I lashed out in anger again at my kids. Parenting these little people you gave me is hard. But I keep finding myself in the same headspace. Lord, I acknowledge, I, I know that you have forgiven me through Jesus. May I continue to model that patience of Jesus Christ, that while he was often inconvenienced by others, his first response was always grace. I've got that same Holy Spirit in me. Allow him to transform me. Enable me to have that response. God, thank you for your provision in my life. Amen. And then after that prayer, lean into the Lord. Change isn't going to happen overnight. It's not going to be you pray this once and it's like, all right, Think about, it. Think about growth, right? Imagine a, a, a cluster of grapes growing as the fruit of the Spirit. It's not just one day they're, they're a, a, a bud and then the next you've got this, you know, uh, nice-sized grape. It, it, takes pro- it takes time. It's progress. But I'm fully confident and I believe the witness of Scripture tells us that this is the pathway to effective change in our lives. Not try harder, but go to God in confession, right? I'm sorry that I did this. And repentance. God, I need you to change me. I invite you in to change me. This is that verse 10 that we saw in the Psalm of David. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit in me. God, you've got to be the one to do this. I can't do it. The first recorded words of Jesus, Jesus' ministry at least, in the Gospel of Mark are as follows. This is Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What did he say to do? Repent and believe the gospel. This is the daily call on our lives. Repent and believe. Repent and believe, right? Repent, turn away from our sins, inviting God to work His transformation in us, and believe the good news that He loves us, that He is faithful to accomplish what He sets on His mind. May this rhythm incrementally make us more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe. Join me in prayer. God, may we repent acknowledging our our fallenness in all areas, not just the major ones, and may we believe the gospel. Lord, as we sing this last song this morning, may we acknowledge that we can come bearing whatever burden we have to the altar, and you will give us rest. Lord, may we, be, may we persevere in this, that as we continue to turn our lives over to you to change us from the inside out, may we not grow discouraged when we don't see that, that growth happen as fast as we would like it to, to go. But may we start to see that transformation, especially next week. May you help us identify what those heart idols are that trigger us to go back to those places. Heal us in your grace. Amen.